This week's episode of Pro Se is brought to you by CaseFleet. What's more important than knowing the facts of your case inside and out? That's where CaseFleet comes in. CaseFleet's revolutionary and easy-to-use software makes it easy to create a chronology of each case and track the evidence for each fact. With an intuitive interface, full-text search, and built-in document review, CaseFleet makes fact management easy. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at casefleet.com law360 and get 10% off your first subscription. Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my great co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello, Amber. Welcome back. Thank you. And also with me today is Alex Lawson. Hi, everyone. Uh, how you guys doing today? I'm excited to be back with you guys. Loved yeah. the show last week. No, no big, terrible surprises. Everything was good. Happy <laughs> to hear it. It's always good when you return and we haven't been fired. That is <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, the important. outcome we're looking for. Um, Amber a- Amber just gave us a glowing review there. No terrible surprises, <laughs> uh, and I think that that's as good of that's as good of a time as any to uh, sort of re up uh, a a humble request to the listeners, uh, as I'm sure everyone probably realizes now. When you uh, in the uh, you know sort of podcast world, uh, reviews are currency, and so I just thought it would be good for us to re up the gentle request for wherever you find your podcasts. Uh, if it, if you, if you are so inclined, please do leave us a review, uh, preferably a good one, but I'm not going to tell you what to write. Um, it does help people find the show. So, um, uh, always, uh, always willing to sort of put that out there. Yeah. It's nice to have those five stars is great, but actual written reviews are better. And maybe people will have more effusive praise than I just offered for our own show. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and we would stress that you do this because we do need to outweigh the, the negative reviews that Amber left from her burner accounts when she sure. was out. Uh, well, I mean, so. I got to do what I got to do. guys. <laughs> and they are damning folks. <laughs> so yeah, let's, let's clear those out of there. Uh, anytime, uh, if you get a minute, uh, just give us five stars, like, and subscribe, all that stuff. Uh, it's a, it's a huge boost. But, uh, before you do that, stick around to listen to today's show because we have a good show. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit in a, in a little while about, um, some of the NFL concussion settlement stuff, which is Mm -hmm. obviously super interesting, a little icky at times. But before then, we got a uh, we got a very interesting ruling from the the Supreme Court today on the issue of a federal statute that that bars computer hacking. It's the sort of the primary federal law that that makes hacking illegal. Um, the justices today uh, on Thursday narrowed the reach of this law. Um, and it's a pretty big deal because in the lead up to the ruling, the a, a bunch of outside groups, media organizations, civil liberties folks warned that if the court reached a different conclusion, that it would criminalize huge sort of amounts of regular behavior on computers and the Internet. So it's we're all uh, I think I think everyone's breathing a sigh of relief with the uh, the outcome that we got. I do all kinds of normal stuff on the internet, and I certainly wouldn't want to be roped into uh, any any undue or any overly broad dragnets. Um, but I think uh, I think we should uh, unpack this one a little bit. Um, what's this law all about, and what was the case that was uh, uh, challenging it? So the statute we're talking about here is the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which, among many other things, makes it a crime to either 
access a computer without authorization or to exceed the access that you've been granted to a computer. So mm-hmm. um, in this case, federal prosecutors used the CFAA to charge a man named Nathan Van Buren, um, a former Georgia police officer um, who had misused the law enforcement database. More specifically, Van Buren allegedly accepted money to run a license plate check uh, to check to see if a local stripper was an undercover cop. So fun. Like facts. I said, I li- li- like I said, normal stuff online. Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> I think more of the stuff that you do online should be criminalized. But uh, <laughs> so but OK, so, um, you know, that kind of stuff like, you know, running license plates for sure. money is not what a police officer is supposed to be doing. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about whether doing so violated this very specific computer right. statute and, you know, whether that reading is proper, given that there will be broad implications one way or the other. The devil, as always, is sort of in the details here because Van Buren was clearly granted general access to this law enforcement database as part of his job. So he didn't break that part of the law that says you, you can't hack into a, a system. Mm-hmm. So the issue then is is whether he, uh, you know, quote, exceeded his legal access in such a way that violated this this statute. He argued that he didn't since the information was readily available to him as part of his job. Um, prosecutors, on the other hand, said that that he had since he knew he was prohibited from accessing this for the purposes that he did. So it sort of becomes this question of um, can you do it versus can you do it for the reasons you did it? And um, eventually a jury convicted Van Buren and sentenced him to 18 months in prison. Uh, and the conviction was later upheld by a federal appeals court by the 11th Circuit, which um, brought us to the Supreme Court. Well, let's talk a bit about why this one is a big deal. I mean, you've made a couple of allusions to how this could have had sort of broad and sweeping implications for people's activity on the Internet. But why is that exactly? Yeah. when um, So when, when Van Buren appealed this case to the Supreme Court, he argued that it would take a lot of sort of normal behavior uh, on computers, on the internet, and make criminals out of all those people who do it based mainly on these sort of vague internal rules. It would, you know, it would take things that were like policies and stuff you weren't supposed to do on a computer and turn that into a criminal law matter if prosecutors wanted to 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 do so. Um, his example was um, uh, workplace bans on on checking sports scores on a on a work computer that if you know if prosecutors wanted to charge that you are you are not allowed to to use the computer in such a way um the case also drew a lot of outside interest from media organizations from criminal justice people um many people who warned that the conviction would amount to a pretty radical uh, expansion of what the CFAA prohibits so there was this big group of media outlets that said the approach used by um, used against Van Buren would would violate the First Amendment. It would prevent whistleblowers from sharing information that they had gained, you know, through legal means th- through their computer. If if sharing that was not against was not something that they were allowed to do, um, that it would it would it would make it impossible for journalists to to scrape and dig through large amounts of data because there could be fears that they were stepping over some line. Um, The pull quote here is that this lower court ruling against Van Buren, quote, criminalizes a virtually limitless range of ordinary computer and Internet conduct. Yeah, you can see why 
various different groups would be concerned about John and Jane Q public, you know, being being deemed cyber criminals through ordinary course of activity. I was being you and I are being sort of glib about the mm-hmm. kind of stuff I do on the Internet, of course. Um, but the, the concerns are pretty well articulated there. What exactly did the high court have to say uh, on this uh, question? So today on Thursday, the Supreme Court overturned van buren's conviction um the the court ruled that the statute did not actually criminalize what he had done which was use information that he had access to for a shady purpose in in Mm -hmm. the process the justices sort of they made a point to clarify and limit the scope of this law they made clear that that um the the cf the cfaa only prohibits someone from actually accessing information that they were not allowed to access it doesn't cover that that they, that someone had a motive for for how yeah. they were going to you know what that why they were accessing information that they already had access to mm-hmm. um justice amy coney barrett wrote the opinion for a six justice uh non-partisan majority it was sort of it's sort of it's one of those cases that doesn't really fall along neat lines um the the big quote this provision covers those who obtain information from particular areas in the computer, such as files, folders, or databases, to which their computer access does not extend. It does not cover those who, like Van Buren, had improper motives for obtaining information that is otherwise available to them. So it's it's an interesting ruling and an, and sort of the outcome that I you know I think a lot of court watchers expected after oral arguments. Um, but uh, it's interesting to get into how she got to this result. I mean, she, she's yeah. uh, obviously a textualist and for the most part relied on the wording of this statute to reach this conclusion. But the warnings that 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 you heard ahead of this ruling did seem to have some impact, even if it was not dispositive in the way that Barrett reached this this result. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and she sort of got into, you know, that this would not be a great outcome in a, a very modern digital society and that it would make criminals of people who violated workplace rules, violated terms of agreement on on a website they were they were visiting. Yeah. Uh, the, the interesting pull quote here. The government's interpretation of the statute would attach criminal penalties to a breathtaking amount of commonplace computer activity. She went on to later add, if the exceeds authorized access clause criminalizes every violation of a computer use policy, then millions of otherwise law-abiding citizens are criminals. All right. uh, For the next story this week, um, we return to the uh, burgeoning, blossoming Robbins Geller beat. Uh, We (laughs) talked about this firm, this... um, uh, securities class action boutique Robbins Geller last week uh, when they got booted off a case for fraudulently concealing uh, their clients' financial interests. Uh, they are in the news again. Uh, just last week, they drew a pretty sharp rebuke from a New York judge who said the firm committed, quote, reprehensible actions and submitted, quote, simply false statements to the court uh, in trying to move a lawsuit that they were involved in nearer to its uh, offices in Long Island. So this is a pretty it's a pretty low stakes fight over venue, which can be a little dry and some would even say boring. But in the context of this firm just getting a pretty hard bench slap and mere days later getting another one in a completely unrelated case, uh, I thought was pretty remarkable. I really thought I'd missed the Robbins Geller talk because I was out last week, but here we are again. (laughs) Um, Yeah, let's dig into it. What's happening in the suit? Yeah, so this, um, like I say, this is um, this gets a little bit weedy in terms of sort of arguing over where a case can be litigated. But what you need to know is that 
Robbins Geller is one of a number of firms um, that are helping to bring investor claims against various Greek shipping companies for uh, allegedly uh, entering into these very shady finance arrangements with hedge funds that the investors basically say manipulated the stock prices and ripped them off. Um, The facts of the case are multi-layered and span over several years. Um, but we, but what what we're going to talk about here is that Robbins Geller filed a number of suits against these Greek shipping companies in 2017, and each time it told the court that the cases should be litigated in the Eastern District of New York, specifically in the Long Island uh, sector of the Eastern District of New York, not the Brooklyn one. And mm-hmm. it cited the fact that the alleged misstatements from these companies were disseminated on the internet throughout the U.S including in Suffolk County and Nassau County and Long Island and, uh, you know, basically all throughout the United States. Um, But it got a little fuzzy from there because later inquiries from the court revealed that the plaintiffs who brought the suit were actually residents of both uh, Manhattan, which is not in the Eastern District of New York, it's in the Southern District, um, and then the state of Oklahoma. And that basically rendered Robbins Geller's submissions to the court, uh, quote, simply false in the eyes of uh, New York federal judge Gary Brown, who uh, ordered the cases transferred to another court last week. Did, I mean, did the firm what did the firm say for for you know why this sort of went down the way that it did because it is it is sort of it's a little strange yeah well so they initially said just sort of like you know these mis these misrepresentations this fraudulent information happened on the internet which basically gives us uh you know free reign to file a case anywhere we want but then when they were pressed on this uh residency issue from the court that's when it got a little strange um Robbins Geller basically asked the court to consider the fact that they themselves, the firm, uh, has offices in Long Island and that the court should consider the, the convenience the convenience of the law firm in picking the litigation venue, which um, if that makes you kind of raise your eyebrows or wrinkle your nose, you're not alone uh, because the judge, uh, it just landed with a huge thud as far as the judge was concerned. Uh, he said it uh, very plainly, quote, the law is clear. The location of a law firm is not a valid venue consideration. The convenience of counsel is not an appropriate factor to consider on a motion to transfer. I love uh, when we talk about something on Pro Se that feels so much to me like the kind of question you'd get in a law school exam. Like, yeah. <laughs> can the firm itself... Can that location be cause for venue? Yeah. No. They, the answer is no. Yeah. They, they, they cited to a couple of statutes that they thought proved that point, and the judge sort of just plainly offered a completely different reading and says, no, we don't consider whether it's convenient for the lawyers to argue in a certain venue. Um, but he was pretty perturbed. This has gone on. These, these cases were first filed in 2017. This is, so this has gone on for several years, just haggling over this this issue of where to even litigate the cases. Uh, and there's another pretty pretty lengthy bench slap, if you'll indulge me here, um, where his, uh, his annoyance with what's going on with Robbins Geller is pretty, pretty evident. Quote, 
It should go unsaid, though as this case demonstrates, apparently it cannot, that litigants and their counsel are expected to be candid and forthright when certifying information to the court on the civil cover sheet. Failure to do so results in substantial interruption, delay, and, rate, and waste of resources. The actions of Robbins-Geller in this matter in falsely certifying these cases as Long Island cases and then trying to defend its actions with spurious legal arguments are reprehensible and could well have subjected the firm to sanctions. Reprehensible. Ouch. Yeah, reprehensible, sanctions, uh, uh, all the buzzwords there. There will be no sanctions in the case, I should note. The judge just sort of like waved that sword uh, out in the air just to underscore how serious it was. The defendants didn't specifically seek them, and the judge, in his view, said that like all the delays and the added costs that stem from this order should be enough of a deterrent uh, for this stuff uh, in the future. I mean, we've obviously said here that we're talking about Robbins Geller for the second week in a row. That yeah. doesn't seem great for the firm. Um, what's what's brewing about that? Yeah, I mean, I guess I, you know, whatever. With you know, two, you know, two such stories inside of a week is certainly noteworthy. We, I, I wouldn't want to read too much into it other than that. But the judge flagged that trend as well. He said, uh, just in a footnote in the opinion, quote, this is not the first time that a court has criticized Robbins Geller for making false statements in a securities class action. In fact, it's not the first time this month. And he's, of course, referring to the FIFA broadcast corruption scandal that we, uh, the, the, the suit that sprung from that scandal that we discussed last week. Um, the firm, it should be uh, noted, they, they, they gave a statement to us and everybody else who wrote about this, that they are not lead counsel in this case, as they were in the FIFA case, and they haven't been actively participating in it for a few years. Uh, they issued a statement that said they sort of took a broad approach when choosing the venue, but in future filings, they will, quote, include more information to minimize any misunderstandings. So um, really interesting opinion. It's an eight-page order uh, that really goes at them pretty hard, also because it deals with um, a Greek shipping company uh, dispute. There's lots of maritime stuff peppered throughout there. Uh, Scylla and Charybdis are mentioned from Homer's I get, Odyssey. I always want to get more maritime law on the show. <laughs> oh, yeah. he mentions, Well, we've done uh, it. Yeah, he mentions a, a, a regatta in there. He was uh, he was really feeling himself. But anyway, as you say, Amber, um, another black eye for Robbins Geller, even if they're not so active in this suit. Um, and I would say I think maybe we're one or two stories away from just making sort of Robbins Geller mishap junction. Just sort of a sort of a recurring bit on the show. I that really that really rolls off the tongue in terms of segment names. Yeah, I'm well, really gonna I'm gonna cross my fingers that they are having a couple <laughs> isolated incidents and we don't get to a whole junction for them. But yeah. happy to hear this story nonetheless. <laughs> yeah, we'll 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 see how it goes. Again, this week's Pro Se is brought to you by Casefleet. Experience a better way to build winning cases with Casefleet's case management software. Casefleet provides lawyers with tools for reviewing evidence, organizing facts, and identifying trends that would otherwise remain hidden. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at casefleet.com law360 and get 10% off your first subscription. For our final story today, I've got an update to talk about related to the NFL's big concussion settlement from a couple years ago. This week, we've seen the league say that it'll end the 
so-called race norming of cognitive tests. That's a practice that made it harder for black ex-players to receive payouts under that big settlement. I remember this came up. We had a whole segment on this a few shows ago, and I remember it being pretty gnarly. It's sort of an uncomfortable set of facts to talk about uh, when you're talking about race science in the in the context of a landmark settlement, a huge settlement that had a yeah. lot of eyeballs on it. So, but let's 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 refresh a little bit. I think this one's definitely a, a real tough one to talk about, but I think pretty important. So it's it's interesting that we've had a next step in in what's going on yeah. here. For anybody who wants sort of a full rundown of what we discussed before, I actually looked this up. It was episode 191 back in March. So mm-hmm. here's the gist, though. Several years ago, the NFL agreed to pay up to a billion dollars to thousands of former players who said that the NFL had ignored the dangers of repeated blows to the head. And that's, of course, so commonplace in football. The way that this was administered, though, is that you had to, as a player, go through a process that measured the severity of your head injuries and any lingering conditions you might have um, to figure out how much of the settlement you would get. Mm -hmm. It was that process that gave rise to allegations last year by a pair of former Pittsburgh Steeler players who said that there was a use of basically a statistical manipulation that's called race norming Mm -hmm. that assumed black players started out with lower baseline cognitive functions than white players. So those former players filed a civil lawsuit over the use of this. They said it made it much more difficult for black players to show a sufficient decline because they're starting at a different baseline. Mm -hmm. And and that would mean they would be underpaid or not paid at all um, for the claims they'd lodged under this big settlement umbrella. So in March, a federal judge was overseeing the administration of the overall settlement, dismissed the cases, saying it was an improper collateral attack on the settlement. But the judge did say that there are concerns about the possible discrimination at play here and actually ordered a mediator to get to the bottom of it. Yeah, it's interesting how, you know, obviously they lost that ruling on um, somewhat procedural grounds, but it raised the issue and it made people talk about it. And, and um, you know, now we have uh, a bit more concrete action this week, even if it was not directly forced by that that lawsuit. Yeah. So we don't have anything from that mediator. But what we do have is the NFL proactively coming out now and saying it's going to eliminate those race based norms. And it's working with an attorney for the class of former players to set up a new assessment program under the settlement with a consultation from this newly constituted panel of leading neuropsychologists. The panel itself, the NFL says, will be eight experts, and they've released a few details. They said it would include two women and three black neuropsychologists on that panel. Um, the NFL unsurprisingly denies that any of the any of this was you know pure discrimination at play. The league did say, and this is a quote: "Everyone agrees race-based norms should be replaced, but no off-the-shelf alternative exists, and that's why these experts are working to solve this decades-old issue." So basically, they say they need a new test, and there's not a great one out there. Yeah, there was some there was some interesting language by the NFL. I would say by sort of saying, "Okay, we're." We're we've we've heard the concerns about these, you know, sort of presumptions of inferior you know, intelligence of black people, but then sort of alluding to the fact that maybe this is a blind spot that exists sort of in the neuroscience community more more broadly, which obviously we're not really um, we're not experts on that. Um, but as a as a means of um, sort of resolving a very serious issue in this high profile settlement, do we have any sense of 
what changed the NFL's tune. Um, as Bill said, the the actual legal challenge fell flat, um, but there uh, is progress nevertheless. Do we have a sense of why? Well, I think that, you know, some of this is just a little supposition, of course, but yeah. I think the whole situation is an interesting one to talk about because of that earlier suit failing. And it just mm-hmm. shows that there is a lot of power to filing a suit with um, big allegations like this in the first place, because the collateral effect here was to draw mm-hmm. a ton of attention to the practice of of race norming, which yeah. I got to say, I had never even heard of it before this case started. Yeah. And I don't think I'm alone. So uh, you had a lot of media outlets in, uh, covering this, not just legal journalists like us on Pro Se and at Law360, but, right. uh, but, but mainstream media as well. ABC News had a big report out this week that included an attorney for the class of former players. He's a man named Chris Seeger. He had derided the race norming practice in that piece, but previously had sort of supported it and said that it was useful in the settlement process. Yeah, I remember so, there was a lot of dust up about whether was. or not he was like a sufficient enough advocate for the for the class members. Right. Yeah. So you see a lot of people as it's gaining more and more attention in the public sort of changing their tune here. And you can imagine the NFL was having a lot of thoughts along the same lines. So yeah. both Seeger and the NFL said it was at the discretion of doctors making diagnoses, whether or not to use race norming uh, to adjust test scores as part of the settlement um, calculation. But ABC News said that that wasn't true because a lot of doctors thought it was mandatory. So you can see how, you know, this wasn't great PR for the NFL, yeah. which, you know, if this is already a big concussion settlement, which was a, a real uh, problem for the league to begin with. Yeah. Um, and it's just sort of piled on to add the race element and the discrimination claims. So... Uh, essentially what we've landed on here is that Seeger and the NFL have said the results of that investigation into race norming, the one that is part of that mediation plan, that'll be released publicly once it's complete. That's still ongoing. Mm-hmm. Um, and after the new procedure is established for however they're going to handle the the settlement claims going forward, it'll apply both to perspective claims, but also to rescore claims that were race normed. Um, yeah. Under the old system. Mm, so we will see some mm-hmm. retrospective stuff here to clean up any problems that are there. Um, you know, presumably on some level, this is good news for people who had questioned whether or not there was some some really pernicious discrimination at play here. But there's still a long way to go. Um, Ken Jenkins, who's a former NFL running back, um, he told Law360 it's going to take a lot more to regain the trust of a lot of the former players and yeah. families who just think the league is not playing fair here. He told us this. I will believe it when I see it. I am very leery that they are going to leave themselves another side door to deny claims. I do not trust that they are going to negotiate in good faith. wrap us up for today's show thanks for being with me bill i'm happy to be here and i I look forward to next week's show i just wanted to note um i think i think uh i think alex probably upset some of our long island listeners oh boy um, oh no what'd he do he repeatedly said in long island as opposed to on Long Island, which Rookie is traditionally how it would be said by the I natives. I was just about to thank Alex for being with me today, but now I don't want to anymore. I uh, 
I'm not looking at the opinion currently, but what I'm going to say is that I'm taking from the opinion there uh, and uh, just using that language. But you know what? That's fine. Uh, I uh, I will hold myself accountable. I'm listening. I'm changing. Uh, I, this is a sincere apology to the, uh, to, to the fine residents of Long Island. And I hope you'll uh, tune into us next week. We also want to thank a bunch of other people for today's show, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, and our contributing reporters, Dean Seal, Zach Zagger, and Ben Kochman. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you want to know anything more about what we talked about today, go to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. And again, don't forget to rate and review our show wherever you're listening. Thanks and see you again next week.